When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Even before the pandemic, globalization was in trouble. The dreams of a world of free trade and pluralist values envisaged after the end of the Cold War had struggled to bear fruit in more testing times. An open system of trade that had come to dominate the world economy since was damaged by the financial crash and the subsequent trade war between America and China. Now it's reeling from its third body blow in a dozen years, a global pandemic that has sealed borders, widely disrupted commerce and left countries eager to lay blame on each other and on global institutions. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, will COVID-19 reverse globalisation? My guest is The Economist Jeffrey Sachs, a professor at Columbia University. His pioneering work in sustainable development and the fight against poverty has taken him to more than 125 countries. He's been an advisor to three UN Secretaries General and to governments around the world, becoming known as the shock therapist for his work advising the Soviet Union on its bumpy transition to a free market economy. Professor Sachs now leads the UN network, working towards achieving sustainable development goals despite the COVID-19 pandemic. And his latest book, The Ages of Globalisation, traces the history of a globalised humanity back 70,000 years, from when humans first left Africa to the age of cloud computing and Amazon deliveries. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to The Economist Asks. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now, the word globalisation is thrown around a lot, and sometimes it's seen as an ideal or something we desperately need to hang on to. But for a lot of people, it's almost a dirty word. What do you mean by it? I mean uh, a fact of uh, humanity, uh, a uh, fact of interdependence over large uh, distances, uh, which has been part of our uh, species' uh, heritage and fate uh, from the very beginning, essentially. As soon as uh, humanity, modern uh, humans, migrated from Africa and reached uh, almost all of the world, they also communicated with each other over very long distances, uh, trading, exchanging ideas, moving, migrating, fighting, passing uh, pathogens, uh, and uh, all the rest. So this has uh, been a long, long story. Sometimes we think of globalization as something new and something to stop, uh, but it's actually something uh, very old, though something that has changed in its uh, 
character and content and intensity over history, which is what the book is about. And when we talk about globalization as helping humanity overcome big challenges, is that the point of globalization? Or is it just something that's happening anyway? So your thesis would be that over time, and we might dive into more testing cases of this, that we should just get on board because we can't stop it anyway. Well, there's a bit of truth to the we can't stop it anyway. We are interconnected and we will remain interconnected. There is definitely a very powerful, positive side to this interconnection. It makes possible many wonderful things. Most importantly, the sharing of knowledge and know-how, the benefits of diversity, the benefits of specialization, the very things that Adam Smith wrote about in 1776 when he talked about the wealth of nations. And his point was wealth of nations comes from an interconnected world, a world in which each part of the world can help to meet the needs and wants of other parts of the world. But it's also true throughout history, there is a dark side of globalization. That's not something new. Globalization is disruptive. Through interconnection means also the interconnection of war. It means the interconnection of adverse facts like pathogens or environmental crises uh, uh, crossing national boundaries. Globalization is something that can deliver very positive benefits for humanity, but we have to be on guard all the time uh, in terms of uh, the adverse effects of uh, global phenomena that we don't want to happen, uh, such as the rapid spread of pathogens. And what age would you say that we're in now? Obviously, you know, if you ask most people that, you get the, the answer that we're in the age of COVID-19 and all of its impacts. But if you were to characterize this era in terms of your historical sweep of globalization, where, where do you reckon we are? The Industrial Age, uh, which I count as the sixth age of globalization, uh, was uh, fundamentally uh, the age of the steam engine, though there were many other developments. And our age is fundamentally uh, the age of uh, the digital world. This is uh, something that has been underway actually for the past 90 years since uh, the great British genius Alan Turing set us on a path of universal computation and zeros and ones. But it is fundamentally transformative of how we live. And indeed, this pandemic is accelerating dramatically uh, the digitalization of the world. This is clear. We are talking uh, through uh, now our new normal daily medium. Uh, We are connected through uh, the digital world to our uh, grocers and our uh, e-commerce and our home delivery. We are working from home. We are seeing an absolute fundamental change in how our economies are working. And it is also the case, in fact, that the countries that are doing the best in suppressing the epidemic are the ones that are deploying digital technologies to help them to do that through contact tracing and through other means uh, supported by the digital technologies. How do you reply to those who say that the scale of the impact of COVID-19, the fact that it has swept across the planet with terrifying speed and impact, is evidence that globalisation itself has gone too far, the interconnectedness has been part of the problem. 
Well, we're going to have new pathogens. We're going to have emerging diseases. We're going to face uh, dangers of many kinds. Uh, We're definitely going to have climate-related crises. The idea is not to reject our basic realities of interconnectedness and all of the gains and benefits that come from them, but rather to be ready in a more targeted and specific way to be smarter in what we do. It comes back to old stories and well-known stories of uh, the Luddites, uh, for example, who smashed the machines in the early 19th century in England, didn't want the Industrial Revolution, said it's going to miserize us. We don't want the machines. I was about but to say I can take you at my, yeah, where I am, I'm off in it. Weekends, my part of Kent, where the Luddites were particularly strong and very, very good at smashing up well, agricultural yeah, the, machinery. There's a little trick exactly, for you sometime, but, but, Professor. But there, there you go. And, and we look back and we're humored or we sneer at the idea that the right response was to smash the machines as opposed to create a social system in which there could be both machines and human decency. And so a lot of the struggle of the last 200 years has been to adjust to the negative aspects of something that overall is positive. And I believe firmly that uh, globalization is not only real enough that pathogens are going to spread uh, in any kind of uh, circumstance, but also that the gains from interconnectedness are so large that you don't stop that reality, but rather you focus on issues like cross-border spread of uh, pathogens or environmental destruction or inequalities well, of let, income. Well, let me throw you a, a bit of a challenge on that one. We had a guest sure. on the show a couple of weeks ago, the head of the armed forces in Britain, uh, General Nick Carter, who was pointing out that one thing that he thought would change is there would be shorter supply lines and that, that in a way some of his challenges that he'd had in terms of you know, making financial and budget arguments about stockpiling, he said, you know, he thought he might well win those arguments now on the grounds that people, uh, governments generally are going to be less keen to rely on far-flung supply networks. So there's already an aspect of globalization which looks like it is weakened by what is happening now. Oh, I'm not so sure. We're going to have workers uh, working from all over the world. Our supply line will be on Zoom, however. Uh, And so we're going to have a different kind of interconnectedness in the digital age. There may be uh, some shortening of some supply lines. I hope that we rely much more on our sunshine and wind than we do on oil that is uh, produced and transported halfway around the world. But in general, the interconnection is going to increase, not decrease, because in a digital age, the interconnectedness is pervasive. I think all these things would be true if human beings were not as you might say bloody-minded or as reactive or simply as emotional as they are in response to economic facts of, of life. But we know when we look around the world and we see that human beings are very reactive and in many cases their reaction has been left and right against globalization. What do you take from that? There's no doubt that there are reversals uh, to the extent of interdependence. Uh, We had a dark age after uh, uh, an empire that uh, had meant extensive transport and communications within Europe. And what the dark ages after the fall of the Roman Empire really means is a reversion to uh, small villages and a great uh, collapse of long-distance trade and communication. We had, after World War I, 
complete disarray of trade and finance. And in 1931 onward, uh, almost a collapse in toto of international trade that took a great many years to reconstruct after World War II. So, of course, this can reverse. But is it desirable that it reverse? No. Uh, these uh, reversals are not occasions of uh, happy uh, home life uh, protected against the burdens of abroad. They're looked upon precisely as the dark age or the age of chaos or uh, the age that gave rise to new militarism and so forth. So I have no doubt that things could reverse uh, but the thesis of my career and my book is that they ought not reverse, but we ought to solve the problems that absolutely are attendant on globalization. Uh, it is a, almost a truism of trade theory that international trade leads to shifts, often undesirable shifts in income distribution. But the argument is don't close trade but redistribute income within societies to make sure that everybody is the beneficiary of a generally positive force. Let's turn to global leadership and what new global leadership might look like, uh, warts and all, out of the time that we're in. You've written about an in, in east-west divide in a new sense, not, not in that of the Cold War. So East Asian countries outperforming the US and Europe in terms of many of their successes and their responses. Do you still think that is the case, given that the whole balance seems to be pretty difficult anyway all across the world in responses to globalisation and its discontents? In my view, we have three centres of endogenous growth, that is innovation-driven growth. We have North America, we have uh, Europe and East Asia. I view that as a great success story of East Asia, including of China. Well, that trend is, is very deep. And of course, for American strategists, uh, almost on beat with the, all of the cliches, came to view China as a, a threat because of this, because uh, America, uh, following British uh, dominance of the world, views uh, America as the natural dominant or hegemonic power of the world. But the fact of globalization is uh, that there won't be one center uh, of uh, dominance uh, once technologies diffuse. Uh, and so the rise of China, I think, is a healthy and a normal development. But now comes COVID, and I would just add two quick points. One is that East Asia, or I could say more accurately, the Asia-Pacific uh, including China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and other countries in the region, have contained the epidemic much better than the U.S., U.K., France, uh, Germany, Spain, Italy. So this is one major point. China's already rebounding. The U.S., I think, is sinking I, deeper into decline. I'm going to just decline. throw in that I think sort of our reporting reflects that it is actually rather early to to say who is rebound, not just who is rebounding, but whose response overall. We are still at the point where we need to be measuring things, not coming to instant conclusions. Oh, I, I would say that it's uh, quite clear that the Asia-Pacific has vastly outperformed 
uh, Western Europe and uh, the United States in containing the pandemic. The numbers are startlingly different. Hundreds Exactly, but we, also, we, we are still plowing through all the factors that might matter there. One well, of them I, may I, be systemic or it may, it may be lots of other things. It may be travel, it may be demographics. It could be how authoritarian you're prepared to be. That would also help, but wouldn't necessarily fit so easily with a lot of the kind of liberal mindset on globalization. Well, what I would say is uh, that first, there's a big difference of performance. And second, there is a big difference, uh, therefore, likely in the economic response. The evidence is uh, very early. You're right. But uh, the rebound uh, shown even today as we speak in the service sector in China as uh, the service economy in uh, the U.S. continues to decline is a notable differentiator. But all of this is to say the rivalry between the U.S. and China, as seen from the U.S. perspective, has intensified because of this crisis. The U.S. is uh, working overtime to try to stoke a new anti-China alliance of countries. And uh, I think history teaches this is a dangerous and wrong-headed approach to the current realities. Will it rebound in the way that you see China becoming the new hegemon out of the COVID crisis and perhaps other factors that, that you've also laid out in that, uh, that global relationship? China is not the new hegemon. There will be no single new hegemon. Britain became the new hegemon because uh, James Watt got there first. Uh, Britain uh, got to the industrial age first by many decades uh, ahead of uh, Western Europe and ahead of the United States. Uh, It uh, turned that into military, financial, uh, economic uh, dominance uh, for uh, quite a long time and institutional uh, innovation for quite a long time. The United States became dominant uh, in almost a handing of the baton from Britain to the U.S. after two world wars and the Great Depression, a story well known. And the U.S. picked up that leadership. And the U.S. in 1945 was technologically dominant. But the U.S. is not technologically dominant now, but neither is China. Uh, Neither is uh, Europe. We have a multipolar world. The world does not want to be led by Mr. Trump. Uh, And many of us in the United States absolutely do not want to be led by Mr. Trump either. But the era of U.S. leadership is over. So having said all of that, I'm not worried about China being the new hegemon. They're not dominant uh, in any way. They're aging like the rest of societies. Uh, They will have declining uh, population throughout this century. I just don't view China as uh, the great aggressor and great threat But I do view it as a highly capable country that throughout human history, throughout the history of globalization, has made fundamental contributions. And I'm counting on that again. Now, what about Russia? I must talk to you about Russia. We both spent uh, time there around the same time, I think, in the the early 90s after the fall of the the Soviet Union. You were instrumental advising the Russian government, particularly the the Yeltsin government, and then its its pro-market reformers, uh, particularly uh, Anatoly Chubayas and and Yegor Gaidar, they were very much on the liberal wing of reforms. And I have to say to you, look, what I went to cover and thought would, would be a story that I'd seen the beginning of in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of communist societies pretty quickly ended up with you know me filing stories day in, day out about currency 
devaluations, oligarchs able to seize control when shares were issued in Russian companies. The knock-on effects have been with with Russia and the Russian periphery for many years and, and perhaps are incarnated in Vladimir Putin. And a lot of Russians think this recipe for liberal reform was wrong. Do you? Well, no. What happened was uh, the U.S. uh, drew a new Iron Curtain about a thousand kilometers to the east. Uh, So uh, countries like Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, now uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia and so on, they became part of the European Union. Uh, They have had uh, big economic gains as a result of this. But the countries of the former Soviet Union, other than the Baltics, which were uh, taken into Europe, were put on the other side. Uh, The U.S. was not interested in Gorbachev's vision of one common European home. Uh, The U.S. was interested in winning the Cold War and moving NATO to the Russian border. Uh, So NATO expanded uh, to the Black Sea, NATO expanded to the Baltics, Uh, then the United States uh, invited Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Uh, It was a little much for Russia. Well, actually, what happened in Russia went wrong rather more quickly, even if, you know, we might... I would have differences probably with you on, on, on how much well, was, was the yeah, fault of, I, of NATO and how much was basically homemade in, in Russia. But let's on the economic yeah, agenda, it did go, it got into difficulties very quickly and perhaps surprisingly so, given that there had been at least a reasonable chance of success. And obviously your, your recipe seemed to work, let's say, a lot better in Poland than it worked in Russia. You see, this is what geopolitics is about. My recipe for uh, stabilizing the currency, for opening up trade, giving a standstill and then debt relief was accepted in the case of Poland by the U.S. government and by the Western countries, but it was rejected entirely in the case of Russia. But Uh, but it was was still, I mean, I was was covering packages, relief packages, which were being negotiated between the U.S. and Russia in the Yeltsin years. You know, to simply say there was no interest seems to be displaced. They were phony. Phony uh, in what way? I recommended uh, in Poland a stabilization fund for the currency, which uh, gave the basis for Poland's uh, stability and very quick return to growth. I recommended deep debt relief for Poland, which was acknowledged and granted. I recommended the very same things for Russia, and they were utterly rejected. And it was explained to me absolutely explicitly by the acting Secretary of State of the United States in 1992, Mr. Sachs, even if your economic prescriptions are right, we are not going to do those things. This is an election year. We are not going to help Russia in this way. So it's very important to understand that but there were, this let, is... I mean, let, let's just sort of come back briefly to what we think went wrong, right? I mean, I know that clearly you blame the big, so if you like, big state American response. But I suppose what I'm interested in teasing out, I mean, you must have learned something along the way. I mean, was Russia just a harder economic reform job than perhaps any of us realised? Well, I had no doubt Russia was an extraordinarily hard uh, economic reform job. It had had a thousand years of uh, autocratic rule, uh, followed by 75 years of uh, Bolshevik state central planning, and it was financially bankrupt. So uh, I had no no doubt that it was a hard uh, case. But I had in my hands uh, John Maynard Keynes' Economic Consequences of the Peace, who taught us wisely and wonderfully to uh, be nice 
to uh, countries in distress and to be nice uh, to uh, countries that are on, if you want to put it that way, the losing side of a cold war or a hot war. Keynes said, do not crimp the future of these countries, but give them a way forward with a fresh start. That was the message in 1919. I suppose that can never be wrong in retrospect, but when you look at the strength of the deep state and the rise of Vladimir Putin, you do kind of wonder whether it's as simple as you make it sound. And that's what I said in 1990, 1991, 1992, 1993, and then I quit because no one wanted to hear the message of be nice to Russia. So in my view, uh, lots of mistakes are made, but uh, one should take responsibility for our geopolitical huge blunder under Bush and under Clinton and uh, then following up uh, under George W. Bush. It was a view that Russia was on the other side of the divide. You do it long enough, you end up with a, a mess. And we did end up with a mess, that's for sure. You're in New York. We've seen major protests uh, in American cities unleashed by the killing of of George Floyd in in Minnesota. But there's also the impact of the pandemic falling disproportionately on black Americans and on poorer um, Americans. Half of black adults in the US might even be out of work at the moment. So I suppose I'm, I'm beginning to think that this is a crisis facilitated to an extent by aspects of globalization that leaves people further behind. And is that idea of a lag beginning to worry you too? Well, this crisis has absolutely nothing to do with globalization and everything to do with uh, two dark sides of American reality. One is plutocracy. We are a completely corrupted political system where it is money that drives politics. Uh, And the second is uh, deep-seated, long-standing racism among part of American society. Trump happens to be a racist plutocrat. I think it misses the point uh, the way you're putting it because you have societies in Northern Europe which are wholly globalized and have universal access to services, universal access to health, to education, uh, to uh, paid leave uh, for family time, for sick leave. It's a social democratic outlook, which I strongly believe in. And all of those societies, I cannot think of one which doesn't have big challenges on immigration. And actually, politics are often much more reactive in the north of Europe, in the Nordic countries, than is perhaps reflected in that argument that they're all broadly social democratic. They often have actually quite reactive responses to globalisation in the form of the rise of far-right and anti-immigrant parties, too. They don't have Donald Trump as president. That's true, because he's American. And they're they're not going to, because they have uh, taken measures to have a moderate society. And the idea of social democracy is globalization plus internal decency. Globalization does not mean inequality within a country in terms of uh, actual living standards. Markets lead to inequality, but social democracy narrows those inequalities through fiscal means, through uh, public transfers, through solidaristic practices. My question really is, where do you see this going? I mean, do you see a way out of this? Are you of a sort of optimistic stripe from your point of view that says, you know, this will be the moment 
that America comes to its senses, if you want to, to, to put it that way? I mean, do you see solutions as a route to progress or do you just see more anger, more divisions and more liberal globalizers being puzzled and upset and angry about the way that the rest of their country feels? Well, you can't write a book about history uh, and uh, feel that there's a determined outcome to something like this. It depends in significant part on leadership, and leadership is an accident uh, in history. We had one of our worst presidents, uh, Herbert Hoover, followed by our greatest president, Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, Roosevelt himself said, if the New Deal fails, uh, I may be the last president we have because uh, the situation was so fraught and uh, the political earthquake uh, potential was so high uh, that we could have lost everything. I can't predict what's going to happen in the United States. Certainly, uh, if Trump is reelected, I would be extraordinarily pessimistic for the future of the United States. Uh, But he has uh, probably a 50-50 chance of being uh, elected, even in the midst of this uh, absolute stark multifaceted crisis. And so the point of uh, a book like uh, the one that I've written is to say, think, what can we do to make it better? Not predict, I guarantee it's better. Not to say the arrow of history is all positive, quite the contrary. At a new age of globalization, where we have major tectonic shifts technologically, ecologically, geopolitically, to say that things are going to go well or that one is an optimist is a kind of empty statement. Uh, To say that things could go well, I think, is an analytical statement because it points out that we have more tools and better ways to address our challenges. You you talk about a generation needing its own moonshot moment, which is a sort of nice idea, something that would crystallise excitement and inspiration, as you put it, in order to achieve any of this, the the benign as as opposed to the malign outcome. I'm going to ask you to let your fantasy run a bit loose at the the end of the interview and just ask, what do you think might be the moonshot moment for a new generation in America and beyond? Without question, our moonshot is to make an inclusive and sustainable society uh, to say we have the tools We could live well, we could have more leisure, uh, we could uh, have a cleaner, uh, safer environment, we could contain pandemics when they inevitably arise. That's what we have agreed to do, after all, with the Sustainable Development Goals, with the Paris Climate Agreement, with the Convention on Biological Diversity. We've said we want to do these things. Unfortunately, uh, politics in the United States uh, doesn't acknowledge any of those ideas. Uh, In fact, it rejects them uh, wholeheartedly. But our moonshot is absolutely clear. It is how to forge a new direction that is not corrupt and plutocratic, uh, but rather is inclusive and sustainable. We can do it. And I think it would be inspiring and good, hard work with a very worthy return for the young generation. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. I appreciate it. And we'd love to know what you think. Is this a turning point for globalisation? What lies beyond? Also, what might this generation's moonshot moment look like? And if liberal economists occasionally get things wrong, well, what have they omitted? Write to us, radioeconomist.com, 
or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For more of our journalism on this and much else, do subscribe to us, economist.com slash podcast offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.